All right, we are continuing our series in the book of James. A little bit of warning before we start. This can get very personal because James deals with very personal issues this morning facing the church. And the, then maybe you think as I'm preaching that I'm talking to you, that I was thinking about you when I was writing it. Trust me when I say I wasn't, right? I'm doing expository preaching verse by verse, right? This is where we landed, right? So I'm not using you as an example. I'm not using you as an illustration. If the Holy Spirit pierces your heart, I think that's the Holy Spirit working in you, okay? So it's not about you. I, I thought of when I was writing this sermon, it was with a blank slate, okay? I'm, I'm warning you this morning. Right? Don't be. I, I, if, you're, if, you're, if, if you're offended this morning, it's not because it's intentional. Perhaps it is the Holy Spirit stirring in you. Okay? All right. Let's go. We are continuing our series in the, in the Epistle of James. And it is always a good thing to go back to the purpose in which James is writing this letter. James is writing this letter to a specific audience, specific group of Christians that resided in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. He didn't specifically write it for people in Embrace in Fairfax County in, in 2001, 2021, but he is writing this to the specific Jewish Christians 2,000 years ago. But let us think about this audience that he's writing to, right? Let us think about the audience that he's writing to. He's writing to one of the first Christians. He was writing, writing to the first generation of Christians who were, who were from the Jewish background. What that means, if you actually think about what that means, is that these Christians, when they professed their faith in Jesus Christ, it cost them a lot of things. When they came out to their family members, telling them that they were, they were now Christians, they were followers of Jesus, chances are, no, most likely, 100% guaranteed, that their family members disowned them. Because to, to the Jewish people, Christianity was a cult. So when these Jewish Christians told the, their family, I'm a Christian, they were kicked out of their family, ostracized by the Jewish community in the Roman Empire. It's like, you know, you're all intimately tight in Annandale, and they say there's a cult that rules in Annandale, and you decide to follow that cult. People in Annandale will disown you. Not only that, there was an economic cost to the profession of faith. Jewish people... Like, like Koreans here in Annandale, right? The, the primary customers were fellow Jews. But if the fellow Jews knew that you were a professing Christian, they would not patron, not patron your business. There was an economic cost to their profession of faith. It meant sometimes being killed because Christians were persecuted. So there was a Social, it was a social suicide. It was economic suicide. And perhaps it was like you, you are risking your life 
professing your faith in Jesus Christ. They aren't like us, where we have it easy. Right? So these were the OG Christians who put their livelihood, their relationship on the line for the Lord. They should be respected, right? And yet, they have the same problems that we have. There were quarrels and fights among them. You would think people who love Jesus that way, you would think people who are just all into the Lord, gave up everything for the Lord, maybe, had like a, maybe they should have maybe a higher level of, you know, people skills so that they won't have fights and quarrels among them. But unfortunately, no, there were fights and quarrels among the body of Christ. This is what James is dealing with. That's what verse 1, verse one says, right? What causes quarrels and what causes fights? Among you. Among you means among the Christians. What causes quarrels and fights among Christians in the body, amongst married people in the body? What causes quarrels and fights? That's what James is dealing with today. What's the definition of a quarrel? Quarrel here means this attitude of hostility. You look at someone and you just don't like them. Maybe they disappointed you. Maybe they hurt you. Maybe they judged you. Right? I was talking to someone who used to go to our church, and one of the reasons that person left was at a retreat that we did a few years ago. This person was about to share something, and this person who doesn't go to our church gave a dismissive look to, the, to this person. This person didn't go to our church. This person doesn't know her, but this person just gave a dismissive look to her. And from that moment on, she felt this bitterness towards the body of Christ. Sometimes, for whatever reason, and you know what I'm talking about, you don't like the people that you belong to in, in, in embrace. Whenever you look at that person, there's this hostile attitude that you have towards, him, towards this person. You know what I'm talking about. Because we're mild-mannered, passive-aggressive, model-citizen Asian people, right? We don't express it, but this hostility is always there. That's what it means to, have, to be quarrelsome, this attitude of hostility. Fighting is an inevitable expression of this hostility. When you're constantly hostile towards someone, eventually it will explode and come in the forefront. Right? You can see this in a lot of, in most, not most, a lot of Korean churches that I went to. You know, during the KM election season or something, budget meeting or something, there's always these major fights that break out. And these major fights that break out, where sometimes cop police has to come and stop it, it's because there was this years of hostility that is built up between two parties. And, in the midst, and, 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 through, and, when, and when they're discussing about specific topics of the church, 
they use that topic as a springboard, as a, as, as, a, as, a, as a reason for their hostility to explode. Quarrelsome is a hostile attitude. Fighting is an inevitable expression of that hostility. Thank, by the grace of God, embrace, right? Cops, haven't, cops didn't have to be involved here. I don't think there's any massive fight we've ever got into publicly in Embrace, right? But it doesn't mean there isn't a quarrelsome attitude here. There is. And, but the way we express this quarrelsome attitude, we don't fight it. What do we do? We leave the church. And this isn't a dig against anyone who left the church, right? They all, they all talk to me, and that is, that is all dandy and good. But the number one reason why people leave the church is because of the, they have this hostility towards someone or something in the church. And rather than dealing with it and forgiving them and striving to build a relationship, they give up on people and they choose to leave. Look, a lot of people stay for a long time because they feel connected to me and the sermons that I preach. And that's, that's true. But eventually... Their loyalty to me and the sermons that I preach have an expiration date because of this quarrelsome, hostile attitude that people feel toward one another. Just because we don't publicly fight, it doesn't mean that we don't have quarrelsome fights within us. James is dealing with that. The history of the church is the history of people infighting amongst the body of Christ. Right now, in the evangelical world, there is this infighting. In the body. There's a division in the body of Christ over social justice issues. The big, big evangelical church in our area, there's a split there right now because of an infighting. It's an issue that has been dominating church history, this infighting. And the question is, what causes the quarrels and fights among you? What do we think? We think it's the other guy's problem, right? When James asks us, what causes quarrels and fights among you? You'll say, the other guy. It's the other person's problem. Because it's always someone else's problem, isn't it? For those of us who are more mature and I guess, more spiritual, I, I would imagine, kind of own up to their part of the bad relationship. You may say, oh, yes, I have something to do with this problem of relationship that I have with this person. Yeah, I know I'm not an innocent party. I contributed to the hostility. If you're evolved, I would imagine you would kind of own up to your part of the, of the conflict. But let's be honest even though you may own up to your contribution to the conflict, you're very forgiving of yourself, right? Even though I don't like that person, I don't like that person because, I, I don't know, I, was, I, had, I had a damaged childhood, right? Or I had, something's wrong with me. I know there's something wrong with me, but I forgive myself. Even if you would confess that you're part, you are part of the problem, you're more forgiving towards yourself, and the blame primarily lies with someone else. It's always the other person's fault. 
We are dying, we are misdiagnosing our problem here. But you see, that's what Satan does, right? What Satan does is he wants us to believe it's always someone else's fault. One of the ways that Satan tempts you not to confess your sins, right? One of the main ways that Satan drives you away from Jesus Christ is for you not to see your sins. And the primary way that he makes you not see your sins is by blaming someone else. You need to look at your sins and confess your sins to the Lord to be saved. But you're not going to confess your sins and be saved if Satan tempts you to focus on other people. It's someone else's fault the way you are the way you are. You understand? One of Satan's prime enemies in the history of humanity is Sigmund Freud. And why is Sigmund Freud the enemy of Christianity? Sigmund Freud says, it's not your fault. These things that you do is not your fault. It's your, it's your id. It's your bad relationship with your parents. It's your external circumstances that make you mess up. Don't blame yourself, Freud says. Blame your circumstances. Blame your parents. It's not your fault, Freud says. You're not a sinner because it's not your fault you are the way you are. Maybe your, your parents should have spent more time with you. Maybe your parents should have hugged you more. Maybe your parents should have sing more praises to you. Maybe your parents should be more accepting to you. Maybe your parents should have been more disciplined with you. It's not your fault that you are the way you are. Blame your mama. Blame your daddy. Right? That's what Satan does, right? It's someone else's fault. How do you know? After Satan tempts Eve, and, and, and Eve tempted Adam, but they both fell, God asked Adam, Adam, what have you done? Why have you done this? What did Adam say? The woman you put in the garden did this to me. He's blaming God. He's blaming Eve. He's not blaming himself. Right? God asked Adam, Adam, why did you, why did you disobey me? He says, the woman that you placed me, let me, let me, did this to me, tempted me. It's not your fault. Right now, right, that's what the whole world system is based on. You are messed up because you're a victim of, I don't know, social constructs. You're a victim of oppressive systems. You are, oppressed. You, you are, you are messed up because of white man's control of everything. It's not your fault. It's the system's fault that you're messed up. Don't look inside because, because inside you're a natural good person. Don't look at your inside. It's not your fault. It's your parents. It's the world system. It's that bully that bullied you when you were a little kid. The fault belongs to someone else. Clearly, parents can mess you up. Absolutely. Clearly, bullies can mess you up. Absolutely. Clearly. Dumb world systems and dumb world philosophies can mess you up, clearly. 
But these things are not the genesis of, you, of the way we are the way we are. There's something internally, even before our mommies and daddies ever laid hold of us, there's something deeply fallen in us that causes interpersonal struggles. That's what James says, right? What causes and among, fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? James is saying, sure, that person can be a jerk, but the core issue of why we are quarrelsome and fighting is the passions that are within us. He says the root cause of quarrelsome and fighting is something within us that is messed up. What is it that, that is within us that is messed up? He says, you follow your passion. What? Disney Channel people, isn't following your passions a good thing? Right? Following what you believe in, isn't that a good thing? James is saying, no, that's the root of your problem. Question, what is the definition of passion here? Passion is a deep yearning, is a deep hunger, uh, is a burning longing to fulfill your inner hunger. Passion is this intense desire to fulfill your deepest longing. Your longing can be maybe, your longing, your longing is, there are many different longings that you have, that I have. One of the longings is a longing for power. What is power? Power basically is, is a person's ability to exert influence and control of other people. So even in a marital relationship, there's always a power dynamic. The husband wants to do a certain way, the wife wants to do a certain way, and then there's this power dynamic. Whose way should yield? Who should yield to whose way? The husband has a certain vision of what he wants to get done. The wife has a certain vision of the way she wants to get done. There is whose vision will win. Whose way you should... Look, like when I first moved into my house, we had a huge argument of what color to paint. The, the, we have a little... We have like two dining rooms, right? Is that a waiting room or something? There's a dining room, there's a waiting room. We fought over what color we should paint the waiting room. That's one of the first rooms that you see when you enter the house. My wife wanted to, wanted to paint it purple. Imagine, Sean Kim, the moment you open the door of my house and you are punched with purple, purple paint. She's wrong, right? That's the struggle of power. We had a huge fight over this. Who's paint? I wanted classy green, right? You don't judge. She wanted aggressive purple. I won. Anyway, right? But that's the dynamic. This longing for power, the longing to have it my way. We have a deep longing for that. We have a longing to be liked and respected. I am nobody unless someone likes me and respects me. We have a longing 
This is like very primal longing to use another human being to satisfy the cravings of our hearts. Oh, she's very pretty. I want to use her to satisfy the cravings of my heart. Oh, he's so handsome and tall. He, I have a longing to be loved and cared for by that tall, handsome guy. We have longing for material things. We have longing for success. We have deep-seated longing. You get me? Passion is allowing these longings to overrun your life and guide your relationship with other people. Rather than first seeking God, rather than first being mindful of God in your relationship with other people, you kind of disregard God and want to use other people to satisfy the deep longings of your heart. You look at other other people as a way in which to get what you long for. Look, let's go back to the Korean fighting dynamic, right? Elder meetings or whatever, you fight, right? Your cops get pulled in. Why do people, why are churches run that way? Why is there such hostility in churches that way? One of the reasons is, in my, in my analysis, especially in the immigrant church, people in the first-generation immigrant, immigrant churches, they don't have voices in society. They're not the Ernest and Young you know, auditors. They're not you know, CFOs. They're not you know, coffee whizzes. They're not lawyers in society. They have no voice, and the only voice that they have is in the community, in the church. They have a deep-seating longing to be respected. They have a deep, deep longing for their voices to be heard. And they have a deep vision of other people following them. So a budget issue is more than a budget issue. It is about respect. It is about my power. It is about me being liked. It is about me being relevant. You approach a budget meeting with that attitude, and if someone disagrees with you on that, of course you're going to get angry. That's what James is saying. You desire something, and you can't have it. That's why you kill. I don't think early Christians were killing each other over church issues, but rather I think they were killing each other spiritually. Verbally abusive, gossiping, character assassination. They were spiritually murdering each other because they were simply not getting what they wanted. Do you understand? Let's say your deepest longing is to be liked. You come to embrace and you think embrace people are cold. You want to use embrace to feel liked and loved and yet embrace people are so cold. Of course you're not going to like it here. 
I'm not exempt from that either. Can I be real, real with you? Because I'm such a real, real pastor. My temptation is to use you to satisfy my longing for significance. I want to feel important. I want to feel that I matter. I do, right? And one of the ways that I feel that I matter is if you're growing spiritually. Rather than me being concerned for your well-being, I, there's a part of me that wants to use you to make me feel better about myself. Right? We're tempted to use each other this way. I have a longing. I want you to meet it. And if you're not meeting it, I'm going to hate you. Or I have a deep longing. I think someone has what I long for, but I don't have that thing that the person has. Therefore, I'm going to envy and covet. This whole thing comes because we are not mindful of God. Rather than allowing our relationship with God to dictate our human relationships, we let our passions dictate our human relationships in the church as well. That's why there's quarrels and fights. How should a Christian, you know, what does a model Christian relationship look like in the church? The model Christian relationship is this. First and foremost, you are wowed by God. Before looking at any other human being, before having any other expectations, you are first captivated and wowed by God. You know your deepest longing is satisfied in God and God alone. And then you look at other people. Then you can love them. Not to use them to satisfy whatever longing that you have. But you can genuinely love them only if you're first wowed by God. Paul Washer, one of my fave preachers of all time. Someone asked him, hey, Paul Washer, what's your five-year ministry plan? He goes, what? What's your five-year ministry plan? He says, I don't have one. What? He says, I don't have a five-year plan because all I know, all I want to do is this. Love God, study his word, teach his word, love my wife, and love my people. That's it. He says, I have no dream to make my ministry bigger. I have no dream to make me any relevant. I have no desire to speak at conferences. All I want is to study about God to teach about God and love other people. That's it. Why, is Paul, why could Paul Washer say that? Because he's wild by God. He doesn't, need, he doesn't need other people. He doesn't need other people's recognition to make him feel special about himself. Because that desire, first and foremost, is satisfied in God. My dear friend, if you're not wowed by God on a regular basis, inevitably, you will look at other people to fill your deepest longing. And they will not. They cannot fill your deepest longing because they're not meant to. Only God is meant to. What causes the hostility and the fight and the abandonment you're led by passions 
and not be and be and you're totally ignorant and not mindful of God. Remember, James is teaching this to the Christians. It is perfectly possible for self-professing Christians, people who say, Jesus is my Lord, it is perfectly possible for such people not to be mindful of God and to follow their passions. He's not talking to unbelievers here. He's talking to professing Christians here. Christian, are you following your passion or are you following, your, is your relationship dictated by the wildness of God in your life? How do you know? How do you know whether you're dictated by the wildness of God? He says prayer. Verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you're murdered. We, talk, we cover that. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. We cover that. You do not have because you do not ask. The prime indicator of whether you are a God follower or a passion follower is prayer. A person who is wild by God cannot help but to pray. Right? Prayerlessness is saying, God, I don't need you. You don't need to be involved in my life, God. That's what prayerlessness really is. Prayerlessness says, I don't need God. Why? Because I'm busy following the passions of my heart. What is your prayer life telling you about what you're following? Let's say you have a prayer life. Fine. And another revelation of what you're following is the content of your prayers. Verse 3, you ask but do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. Did you know there's a right way and a wrong way to pray? Did you know that? There's a way you pray where God would answer your prayers. And there's another way you pray where he will not answer your prayers. That's what verse 3 is about. Why, do not, why don't you have more answered prayers in your life? Number one, because you don't pray. That's what verse 2 is about, because you don't ask. Or number two, you pray with the wrong motive. Look, we are called to ask God for things. We are. We are called, being a Christian means you're living a life of utter dependence. You depend upon God for your work. You depend upon God for your marriage. You depend upon God for the wisdom that is needed to raise your kid. In every aspect, every facet of your life, you are called to depend upon God and ask him. Right? Lord's Prayer. Jesus says, pray that God will give your daily bread. Daily bread is not just literal food on your table. Right? But daily bread is also ask God to help you with the process that is involved in giving the daily bread, which is your job. Most of us, majority of our time, spend working. He's, he's saying, pray for your job. He also says, pray that God will not lead you to temptation. Pray that you'll be able to forgive other people when they wrong you. Pray for your relationships. Pray for every detail of your life. Ask God. So Jesus is telling us to ask God for things. But the asking has
has to be within the context of your understanding of God. Lord's Prayer. Does it start with, give us this day our daily bread? No. What does the Lord's Prayer start with? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're praising God for his fatherhood. You're praising God for his name. You're praising God for his kingdom. And then give us this day our daily bread. Right? Even your daily request has to be confined within your understanding of the wildness of God. When you do that, you will experience answered prayer. Look, I'm, I'm bad at asking for specific stuff for God. I really, I should, I should do more of it. But my life is this constant answered prayer. Because I think the secret of the answered prayer in my life is this. By his grace, I am wowed by him. And when I'm wowed by him, things just happen. Cases that should not be approved get approved. The mistakes that are so detrimental get corrected. I remember last year, around this time, right, there was a huge mess up at work. I thought I was going to get fired because my paralegal checked the wrong box in the form. And that's for like 100, worth of, 100 cases. She didn't check the proper box. I told Sean, Sean, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to get fired. Sean gave me detailed financial instructions of what I need to do. Thank God for Sean and Emily. They were my financial advisors. But you know what happened? The day after I discovered, and, and that weekend was a hard weekend because I thought I was going to get fired. The very next day, the government announced that the form that my paralegal messed up, the U.S. government says, that's not relevant anymore. So overnight, that form that I thought was the end of my career was no longer relevant. I texted Sean that Monday. And Sean always says, let the people say, Amen. My life, God, is a series of answered prayers because by his grace I am bowed by God. Perhaps there is no answered prayer, even if you ask for it, because you ask for the wrong motives. What is the motive that you're asking? James says, if you're asking to satisfy your passions without any regard to God, He's not going to answer it. Let's say you want to get married. Lord, I want to get married. I want someone to spend Christmas with. I want someone to go skating with at D.C. I don't know whether that's what you want to do. I want someone, right, to, to, to keep me company at night. Oh, I want, I want, I want. Legitimate desires, by the way, right? Longing for companionship is a legitimate desire. Fine. But if your primary goal for a spouse is for you and not so that you could take this woman and, and, and just be united with this person so that, you, so that God will be glorified in that relationship. It's the, if that's not the primary motive of your prayer, if the primary motive of your prayer is, Lord, I need someone 
who can satisfy my cravings, is if that's the motive of your prayer, I don't know whether God's going to answer that prayer for you. You ask properly. You ask for God's glory. You ask, if you don't know what it is, you ask, Lord, I don't know, but I want to glorify you through this somehow. When you come with that attitude, consistently, constantly, God, you experience answered prayers in your life. But because we're not wild by him, we follow our passions. Even we let our passions dictate our prayers. That's the reason for not answered prayers. James is saying also in verse 4, following our passions and not being mindful of God makes you an adulterous enemy of God. Oh, this is so harsh. Verse 4 is very harsh. It says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He's saying, if you're, a, if you're a self-professing Christian, once again, he doesn't mean unbelievers. If you're a self-professing Christian, and yet functionally in your everyday reality, you are more focused on following the passions, the deep longings of your heart rather than God, James is saying, that makes you an adulterous person. He says, you're a cheater. Because you say you're following God, and yet in reality, you are following your passion. And following your passions, if, you're, if, you, if you live life only devoted to your passions, whatever your passions are, whether it is to be respected, it is to, for, for power, what is to be liked, whatever it is, if you're devoted your life to following your passions and not being mindful of God and not following God, then you are an adulterer because you say you're a follower of God and yet, no, you're a follower of the world. Following your passions, living to satisfy the deepest passion of your heart, he says, that's what the world teaches you. Well, the, what, the, by world, in verse 4, he doesn't mean, you know, our physical bodies or whatnot, or the realities of the world. The world, he means, is evil systems, evil philosophy that is anti-God in this world. There's a system of thought, system of value, system of beliefs that are evil, that are controlled by Satan, that is deliberately against God. There, is, there are such systems in the world. There are. Right? What do these systems have in what do these systems have in common? These systems are telling you precisely what Disney is telling you. Follow your heart. Do what feels good to you. Go to places where you want to go, hang out with people that you want to hang out with. Do jobs that, that, that you will be fulfilled in. It's about you. It's about following you. That's what the system, system of the world is aimed toward. That's what the system of the world teaches. You do you. Follow you. Look, isn't that how Satan tempted Adam and Eve? Isn't, how, isn't that how tempted, Satan tempted Eve? Eve, if you eat this, you don't need God. You can decide for yourself what right or wrong is. That's how he tempted it, right? Eve, you don't need God. If you eat this, you can decide. Your heart can decide. Your mind can decide what, what good and bad is. The genesis of the system is this. You don't need God. You just need to follow the longings of your heart. 
if your longings of your heart is be importance, and if you think your job is going to satisfy the longing of your heart for importance, then guess what? Sacrifice your life for your job. Right? Living your life practically following your passions. You are a friend of the world. And James is saying, you are the enemy of God. Because God's people do not follow our longing. Our longings are not the one that drives us. God is the one that drives our life. My friends, who is driving your life? You can say God to me right now, but examine your life. The things that you do, the place that you, places that you go, the things that you long for. Is God in any of it? Where is he? Where is he in the dreams of your life? Where is he? Where is he in your relationships? Where is he? Where is he? If you are a self-professing Christian, and yet you're following your longing, James is harshly but clearly saying, you are an adulterer. Because you say you belong to God, but yet you're cheating. James is saying, you are the enemy of God. That's why, once again, unbelievers can't be adulterers because unbelievers never made the profession that they belong to God. This warning does not apply to unbelievers. It applies to us, believers. With all due respect and love, are you an adulterer? Are you the friend of the world? Or do you belong to God? How do you know? Do you pray? Are you wowed by him in your prayers? Is your desire for his will to be done more so than your will to be done? Verse 5. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? This is the hardest verse in the book of James. No one seems to know what James is talking about. People can guess, right? So this is my stab at it. So he earns, he, in verse 5, means God, yearns, he desires jealously over the spirit. That spirit is a human spirit, right? Human spirit that he has made to dwell in us. So basically what I think this verse means is this. When God created the human being, he breathed his spirit into us. So we have a soul that is, that is indwelling it within us, that is given by God. God jealously yearns that the inner spirit within you dwells with him. He jealously, passionately yearns that your mind and the spirit within you dwells with him. Not to follow the passions of your heart. He says he wants, he yearns 
for you to dwell with him. It is this yearning, one of the main reasons of why God sent Jesus Christ. It is so that our spirits can dwell with God's spirit. On our own, by our natural birth, we cannot help but to follow the passions of our hearts. That's what original sin is, by the way. Original sin basically is, is our tendency to follow our passions rather than God. That's what original sin is. Every human being is born with a tendency to follow our passions. But for the Christian, through faith in Jesus Christ, he retunes our inner spirits so that he can be aligned, so that we, our spirits can be aligned with him. I talked, I talked about Olivia during, my, during the call of worship. Olivia wasn't a Christian when I first saw her, or when I first met her. She, had, she knew, of no, she didn't know anything about Jesus Christ until she was, I think, 25. But now there is this holy alignment that she sees the tragedies of her life that will perhaps destroy the faith of most people that I know. But she still sees God in the midst of all her trials. That's evidence of her spirit being in tune with the reality of God. Is your spirit in tune with the reality of God? If you follow your passions, if I follow my passions, that's evidence that I am still an enemy of God, that I'm not in tune with him. And the only way that you can be in tune with God is professing faith in Jesus Christ. Knowing that he died the death that you died, he lived the life that you should have lived so that, you can, so that he can purchase you to belong to God. Back to the original issue of the day. How do you love people in embrace? You need to be in tune with God first, man. If you wait for us to change, if you wait for that person to change, that person's not going to change. God is allowing that inconvenient reality in embrace so that, so that you can use that instant to go to him. To say, Lord, I'm unforgiving I'm, because I want to use that person to satisfy my passions, but that person is not letting me. Therefore, I don't like him. But this indicates that I don't know you. I need you. Lord, use this incident for me to be tuned to you. That's what conflicts should do. Lead you to Christ. Is your conflicts leading you to Christ or are they leading you to more bitterness? The inconvenient relationship in this, in this church is not for God to let, it's not God telling you to leave the church. He's not. It's God letting you, asking you, look inside of you. Are you in tune with me? Are you in tune with him? Let us pray.
Father, we, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the rebuke. Thank you for the reality. Father, our incom- uncomfortable relationships are in- inevitable in our lives because people invariably, most likely, indefinitely will inconvenience us, makes us hostile towards them because people cannot possibly satisfy the longing of our hearts. And yet we think they do, they can. And when they do not meet our satisfaction, Father, we are hostile towards them, we don't like them, and we want to abandon them. Father, we believe you control all things, including the people in this church. You are allowing conflicts, you are allowing us to feel hostile towards people so that you will reveal in us the fact that we are not in tune with you. The reason why we can't be forgiving, the, we, the reason we can't be more charitable, the reason why we can't be more patient, the reason why we don't want to build on relationships is because, Father, we're not in tune with you. It is our prayer this morning that you rebuke us more deeply, reveal our hostility, reveal our unforgiving nature, reveal our need for Christ. May we cry out to you for the filling of your Holy Spirit so that as our spirits are filled, Father, we can share charity and love towards the people that we we disagree with in this body. Father, allow us not to be followers of our passion. Allow us to be followers of the living God. Wow us with your presence. Allow us to passionately pursue you in your word and prayer. Lord, may our minds be expanded by the wildness of God so that everything in our lives, especially our relationship, will be colored by your reality. We pray for your leading. We pray for your continued provision. All these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.